Hello, and welcome to Talking Opinions. I am your host, Anthony Livingston Hall. As the title indicates, this is a Calgon episode to take you away from COVID, Afghanistan, hurricanes, wildfires, and every other natural or man-made disaster, including Donald J. Trump. <laughs> and if you didn't get that allusion to Calgon, Google it. Trust me, you'll like it. Film festivals are becoming the only places where independent films can be seen in cinemas these days. I gather this is because distributors are finding no commercially redeeming value in marketing for cinemas any film that breaks the three-thought rule. No less an authority than actor-director Sean Penn decried this rule during a promotional interview recently for his indie film, Flag Day. Here is what he said on PBS on August 27, and I quote, I'm just really grateful to have this one get a life in the theatre before it goes into the box. It certainly has become, we all know, much more difficult for films that break the three-thought rule. If there is more than three thoughts, you're going to have a tough time getting it distributed in a movie theatre. That interview inspired this episode because as I watched it, I could not help experiencing anew the frustration I felt trying to see an indie film way back in 2012, which my local Cineplex trailered as a coming attraction to a theatre near you. It never came anywhere near me. But more on that film later. I appreciate the gratitude Penn expressed for the life his indie film got in the theatre. But that life might as well had been on Mars, because the only theatre that played it was light years away, and its life there was over in the blink of an eye. Which means that, like 99% of the people who will end up seeing Flag Day, I am now waiting to see it out of the box. And yes, I know, some home theatres make public cinemas look like private dens these days, but watching a big-screen TV at home makes about as much sense to me as driving a Greyhound bus as the family car. <laughs> the point is that this three-thought rule enables Hollywood to churn out blockbuster fantasy and comic book movies at a fast and furious pace. And I suspect Penn is every bit as mindful as I am that Hollywood producers and distributors will just keep feeding the junk food public 
what it craves. And so, chances are that, unless you can attend festivals like Sundance, Tribeca, Cannes, or Venice, which wrapped on Wednesday, the only place you'll see a film with more than three thoughts is on your home screen. That's why I'm just really grateful that companies like Apple and Amazon are funding so many of them uh, with that thought in mind. That said, Paradise Love is the indie film I alluded to earlier. As it happened, after premiering at the Cannes Film Festival in 2012, the life it got in the theatre, before going into the box, was so short, the life Flag Day got seems like Methuselah's by comparison. But I hasten to clarify, and you will soon see why, that my interest in Paradise Love was entirely altruistic, not at all hedonistic. In fact, it related to a blog commentary I had written five years earlier, titled Neo-Colonialism, British Women Travelling to Former Colonies for Sex, on November 27, 2007. And, given that title, you can well imagine the backlash it provoked. Nonetheless, even transmitting from a box in my home, Paradise Love played as an artistic and authoritative affirmation of my take on this controversial topic. But fear not, I am going to avoid spoilers in case this episode titillates so much you cannot resist the urge to see it yourself. Suffice it to know that this film dramatizes in graphic and often sadomasochistic fashion a surprising number of rich, middle-aged white women, a picture more Emma Thompson than Emily Blunt, <laughs> traveling to Africa to hunt for sexual healing come satisfaction. And... To help them in their predatory pursuits, African beach boys become their willing prey. In other words, these women give a neo-colonial meaning to white mischief on that dark continent. Uh, mind you, as I watched Paradise Love, I couldn't help thinking that Spike Lee's seminal film, Jungle Fever, would have made more sense if it had featured a similar cross-gender twist on interracial sex. Granted, we would still have to overlook the throbbing subplot of Paradise Love, which the Aretha Franklin song, Who's Zooming Who, fairly summarizes. Of course, there is nothing new about the sex tourism Paradise Love depicts. After all, 
middle-aged, invariably white men, have been traveling throughout the Far East for years for this kind of taboo pleasure. And, as shocking as it might seem, there is nothing new about white women aping white men by traveling to exotic locations for sexual experiences they dare not pursue back home. In fact, this cross-cultural sexual phenomenon was dramatized in equally provocative and titillating fashion in Heading South. That 2005 indie film was not nearly as acclaimed as Paradise Love, but it featured middle-aged white women traveling to Haiti, not so much to get their groove back as to get it on with Beach Boys there. Apropos of which, having mentioned Spike Lee's 1991 film, Jungle Fever, I'd be remiss not to mention Terry McMillan's 1998 film, How Stella Got Her Groove Back. The taboo it features is not racial, but cultural, featuring as it does a middle-aged black American woman making a similar pilgrimage to Jamaica. But that movie belongs in the oxymoronic genre of romance sex tourism, which is hardly worthy of comment. In any event, the reason my 2007 commentary provoked so much backlash is that I dared to discuss the truth and consequences inherent in the surreal safari of white cougars hunting black stallions in Africa and the Caribbean, especially because I readily acknowledged the win-win proposition it presented for all parties involved. For starters, I disclosed my belief that prostitution of any type is a victimless vice that should be decriminalized so long as it's between consenting adults. In other words, it makes no difference if the prostitutes are young black men and their johns old white women. I suggested that, even if hotel managers or police officers have probable cause to suspect that our beach boys are chatting up matronly-looking tourists as a prelude to an illicit assignation, prohibiting, or God forbid prosecuting, such hospitality, would be unsustainable and utterly counterproductive. I hasten to note, however, that there is a red line between hospitality and harassment, which local governments have a compelling interest in making sure is never crossed. Uh, perhaps most provocative of all, though, I predicted a drop in crime and a commensurate boost in tourism if we could get more of our delinquent young men to spend more time helping female visitors get their groove on. <laughs> but I can't be the only Caribbean native who would feel greater pride in our region 
if our beaches were known more for cruising gigolos than menacing potheads. I alluded to this earlier, but, unlike men, women often characterize their sex tourism as situational. Oh, I met a cute guy in the bar last night, and one thing led to another. <laughs> or even romantic. In truth, practically all sex tourism is transactional or mutual exploitation, even if some women prefer to fantasize otherwise. Which is why this phenomenon is so hard to document. I mean, even the most liberated woman would be too ashamed to disclose that she is traveling to Africa or the Caribbean to pay for sex. But I grew up in the Caribbean, and our beaches were always polka-dotted with middle-aged white women holding on to young black men like koalas holding on to eucalyptus trees. So, at the very least, I can personally attest that this phenomenon is neither new nor rare. And, I gather, it is more popular than ever there and in Africa. But surely the far more interesting dynamic afoot here is the matter of race. Because it is a curious thing that middle-aged white women show no compunction about traveling to predominantly black countries to have sex with black men. But those same women show apprehension about merely crossing paths with black men in their own predominantly white countries. To be fair, though, what distinguishes women, a.k.a. sugar mamas, from men as sex tourists is that women are often in search of consensual, exotic sex, whereas men are often in search of coercive, pedophile sex. Granted, given the number of female teachers being prosecuted for preying on schoolboys lately, women seem hell-bent on aping men in that coercive, pedophile way too. As it happens, I addressed this phenomenon in the episode titled Female Teachers Behaving Like Pedophile Priests on November 29, 2020. At any rate, Paradise Love is unabashed when it comes to interracial sex, but it is surprisingly bashful when it comes to matters of race, class, and even the penumbra of neo-colonialism. Still, paradise love is so provocative because, by paying for sex, the women are betraying what many believe is their natural sense and sensibility. Yet the irony is that the film gives that sense and sensibility full airing 
when the lead cougar becomes hysterical upon finding out that her beach boy was lying to her about his personal life. <laughs> Alas, an all too predictable plot twist. Uh, but I'll say no more. Except to tease that, the way she goes about dealing with her antic feelings of betrayal is straight out of looking for Mr. Goodbar. That's it. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow me on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to contact me, I invite you to email anthonyhall279 at gmail.com or use the contact feature on my blog at www.ipjn.com. Thank you for listening, and until the next Talking Eye Pinions, goodbye.